Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's um, certainly a delight um, for me to be with you tonight. Um, I should... uh, uh, One uh, mini-addendum. I'm no longer a member of the Commission um, on International Religious Freedom. I'm happy to be rid of it, and I think it is happy to be rid of me. (laughs) Uh, Attempting to clarify the the concepts that I've chosen uh, for my lecture tonight I understand and I assume that uh, many people might not be quite, um, uh, perhaps happily so, familiar with the concept of Islamophobia and um, only uh, most superficially familiar with uh, anything that have to do with Islamic law. Uh, So, um, by way of introduction, I imagine, or if you develop a a mental image of um, one of um, one of several narratives I'm going to discuss with you tonight. One in which um, heavily armed men step into towns or neighborhoods, gather up men that are um, between certain age brackets, And not necessarily limited to an age of uh, security risks that they identify, but um, let's say any male between the ages of 18 to whatever age. And if there is someone who they wish to arrest for security reasons, and they do not locate that individual, they might very well arrest the child um, that is the closest relative to that individual, whether um, that child is a son or a brother or sometimes cousin. And indeed, at times, the female closest relative. And uh, imagine that the child is, could be as young as 13 years old. It's not a pretty image. It's definitely one that 
makes us immediately develop a picture of the exotic, the alien, and I dare say, considering the topic of my discussion tonight, the Islamic. But as I drew this picture, I didn't actually mean something done by Muslims, but it's something that is done by Muslim, to Muslims by us. It is standard operating procedure that to this day our forces whether in Iraq or Afghanistan, will enter a town, will arrest all male within what they deem to be a fighting age, and at times arresting even children related to suspected terrorists or resistance fighters without making the distinction. That brief moment from the time that you develop the sensation of the exotic, the alien, and the Islamic to the moment that it dawns on you a nearly intuitive sense of it cannot be the picture that he is drawing committed by our troops cannot be true and indeed must not be true. Is what I mean by the Islamophobic. I don't Islam mean Islamic phobic as outright religious bigotry. But like all forms of phobia, it works at the level of the subconscious, distancing, removing, objectifying its subject until we learn to disassociate. But how do I tie this to the field of Islamic law? Well, you'd be surprised. What is peculiar and indeed, before I, I, I go on to, to connect it, um, some of you, uh, I, I'm not sure, there, there is a documentary that came out called Standard Operating Procedures uh, about our practices in Abu Ghraib. But the thing that the documentary doesn't uh, address um, is that these practices, which I describe, was not limited to Abu Ghraib, or detainees in Abu Ghraib, their their ongoing standard operating procedures of uh, our occupation, particularly in Iraq, but also in Afghanistan. What is remarkable about the development of these various policies, policies of detention, including the detention of children, 
policies of exceptionalism as to the application of the Geneva Conventions and normal human rights standards, policies which adopt a logic that what can be culturally expected was um, a normal society or normal societies, however uh, normals are defined, um, are policies that evolved through a rather, um, if it wasn't um, uh, shameful, I would say, uh, fascinating uh, uh, dynamic with our own very cultural assumptions about Islamic law and Islamic people and what the law of Muslims say. So, for instance, the standard operating procedures as to the detention of men of fighting age were intimately part and parcel of our assumptions about laws of jihad in Islam and the duty and imperative of jihad in the lives of Muslims. The policies about the detention of children was influenced by our sense of, and indeed in, in, in the development of these uh, policies, at one point there is an attempt to go around and, and ask um, so-called Islamic law experts, when is a child an adult in Islamic law? And then to reason from that, that, well, Muslim societies would have different expectations vis-a-vis -vis human rights, and therefore these policies that might be shocking otherwise um, do not necessarily have to have the same impact in Muslim societies. But lest you get the impression that our understanding or attempt, as superficial as it is, to understand Islamic context is always with uh, an eye towards mitigation. Our, I'm sure you've seen pictures in Abu Ghraib where men are stripped naked and forced into sexual uh, uh, positions with um, female undergarments put on their head and, and so on. Um, Contrary to the, the common assumption uh, that these were criminal acts that were punished for, in fact, uh, the prosecutors in these cases um, dubbed these as milit uh, standard, milit standard operating procedures, and they arose as part and parcel of, again, assumptions about what is needed to break a Muslim male. 
It is not that we were actively trying to avoid the notion of inducing torture or pain, but we were in fact going for what we thought for a Muslim male would induce the greatest degree and amount of pain. And that is a, our perception that a Muslim male would find a deep sense of humiliation, deprecation, and would fundamentally break down as a jihadist, as a fighter, if they're stripped naked, if they're stripped naked especially by women, if their clothes are torn, with, torn off with sharp objects rather than uh, simply undressing themselves, if forced into uh, sexual positions involving other men, and of course the added gory touch of uh, female undergarments put on their head as the ultimate in humiliation and the logic as it was in Abu Ghraib and as um, time and again human rights organizations have pointed out in numerous reports remains essentially the same is that well, there is a specific cultural context here, and the context here is one of the prevalence of Islamic legal standards, and we, in order to have effective counterterrorism policies, must work within the context of Islamic law or what those people consider binding upon themselves. If you think about an example like this, you pause and you wonder, where do you begin? Where do you start unpacking a phenomenon like this? Do you begin with the assumptions about the jihadists, and the imperative of holy war as we understand it, or the assumptions about childhood and adulthood and Islamic legal classifications as we understand it, assumptions about gender roles, or assumptions about the male ego as we understand it, and what happens when we make these assumptions about Islamic law? In what ways do we, in fact, construct what we fear and fear what we construct? What comes first? What follows? And how does it end? Let me throw in... Um, another narrative. Part of what you, um, all you have to do is just uh, go in any of the um, 
um, uh, regular bookstores, and uh, if you check the um, sections on the Iraq War, um, you will ultimately find books that document our practices with um, something called ghosts. Ghosts are, in short, uh, they're an extension of the logic of uh, the exceptional jurisdiction or the rather exception of no jurisdiction in Guantanamo and um, also to, in a, in a rather more remote fashion, extension of some of our logic as to undocumented detainees, uh, uh, rather undocumented aliens. Uh, ghosts are undocumented detainees. Uh, we, we document them, but we don't document them at the same time, in the sense that um, no official record is uh, preserved uh, as to these ghosts, and you must have heard of the secret detention programs, um, the people that go in and out of them, or quite often in but not out. Um, and uh, one of the things that you also see in that documentary, Standard Operating Procedures, uh, is uh, in that documentary they talk about the 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 torture and death under torture of one such ghost, uh, an Iraqi detainee of no name. Uh, interestingly, uh, the, the people who did the documentary themselves were not able to discover this detainee's name, and neither has any of the human rights organizations. But the um, they, they, they touch upon a detainee who's being tortured, and then they discover, as, the, as, as they torture the fellow with, of course, his face covered, that he had passed away uh, some time ago, a few hours ago, and, and they didn't realize it because um, they thought he was unconscious. Uh, but this documentary really touches upon a, a large category, and um, these are the categories of the absent from our consciousness, except perhaps for the consciousness of those who work in the human rights field. And there's no question, not even by our administration, that the practice of ghosts and the secret detentions and abductions and so on violate international uh, law and international human rights law. But one of the most remarkable uh, reasoning that, that I've encountered in the literature as to the practice of ghosts um, and the, um, the, the, the idea that uh, detainees could be tortured methodically is you would expect the the sort of the um, the logic of uh, um, the the 
security logic of, well, these are necessary means in order to fight terrorists and criminals and so on. But where you find the, 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 the most remarkable reasoning is two prongs. One, one that I think you can anticipate, and that is, well, these are not normal terrorists, but they're jihadists. And so nothing can, none of the, the, the human rights conventions that were draw, drawn up had the category of a jihadi in Islamic law. And um, as it was put to me once if uh, these jihadi folks are thinking of 93 versions or 99 versions or whatever it is in, in heaven, well, we need some serious pain to put the 99 pa- versions out of their mind and get them to focus on this world, uh, as stated by uh, an official. Uh, but the second uh, might be a bit surprising, or at least I hope it is, and that is, well, you have to understand that under Islamic law, these folks are regularly penalized by flogging. And so normal flogging, which induces normal pain in normal people, would not necessarily mean much to them. And therefore, if we cripple ourselves by our own Western cultural Judeo-Christian paradigms, uh, we lose the war, but we must think, and here's the part that really upset me, we must think as Islamic law experts. It was news to me that Islamic law experts think in that fashion. But on the other hand, sometimes the way we deal with Islamic law is to produce something that some would argue is good. And here I will, I I would guess that not many of you have heard of our Reconcilables program, Irreconcilables program. Show of hands. Well, this is uh, General Stone, who um, is now um, responsible for Iraqi detention centers, um, has um, initiated, uh, often reformed, uh, referred to as Program 123, which seeks to make irreconcilables, this is the terminology used in the, in the military, reconcilables. So what it does is that it, it, um, it attempts to engage Iraqi detainees at the level of Islamic law to convince them that their ways are erroneous under Islamic law paradigms. Now, they're still in detention, 
this is not necessarily correlated with something that ends abuses before you start engaging in quote-unquote dialogue. But um, the purpose is to engage them at the within the assumptions, within the categories, within the premises that they would understand and that they would uh, accept as legitimate. But the most remarkable thing about the reconcilable program, or irreconcilable programs, whichever way you want to look at it, is not that um, it violates the Geneva Convention, uh, again, uh, but rather its profound distrust engendered within this program of the category of Muslim reformers. And here let me have to tell you a bit of the background. Initially, as conceived, the idea was as the RAND Corporation has noted in several of its reports that it is essential that we have a policy of encouraging Muslim reformers because they work from within the tradition and they um, are able to produce an ideological transformation and that, as the argument goes, that the war with terrorism is, in, in, in profound ways, is also an ideological war. And initially, the idea was to engage Islamic uh, moderates or Islamic reformers to articulate arguments, and then we, in turn, would deploy these arguments in engaging militants and winning, attempting to win over their, their minds. And here were uh, the, the um, interesting role played by, played by Islamophobes. Some of you might have read uh, just last week, there was a front page in the New York Times, um, an article about a teacher that has attempted to set up a school among its courses is teaching Arabic. And the, 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 what interests me in the article is several statements that uh, um, attributed to Daniel Pipes, uh, in which Daniel Pipes uh, repeatedly um, in justifying why there was a, a, a concentrated campaign by Islamophobes to ruin this teacher's career, uh, Daniel Pipes makes some remarkable statements about that, that, that it's Muslim moderates where, who we have to distrust the most. Uh, it's Muslim moderates that are the most um, insidious form of danger because they seek to convince us that there is nothing wrong with Islamic law and Islam, and once we're duped, we are finished. Well, that same logic 
played a very critical role in the cutting out of the, again, Muslim reformers' role in our program of reconcilables or program 123, where General Stone and his staff started doing something quite remarkable. They decided, well, we we sometimes understand what Muslim reformers are talking about, sometimes don't. Sometimes we like what we hear, sometimes we don't. Um, they tell us that their jihad is not always a bad thing. Um, it, it depends on how you interpret it. Uh, people like Daniel Pipes tell us that jihad is an inherently bad thing. Well, the 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 it, it, now there's enough of a question mark in our minds that why work within the Muslim element at all? And so the next step was to assign people military staff, assisted by some non-Muslim advisors, to mine the Qur'an and traditions of the Prophet, the Qur'an, the Holy Book of Islam, and the traditions of the Prophet, for, quote-unquote, traditions deemed to be reconcilable with us, i.e. traditions that we read and we say, these sound like good, tolerant traditions, while the other part we conveniently put aside. And then, armed with this material, which we cultivated opportunistically from within the vast literature uh, of uh, Islamic sources, go to the detainees and wage our ideological warfare to convince them that they don't understand their religion as they should. Of course, added was the little minor inconvenience that, well, if you, if you refuse to see it the way we, we tell you to see it, you're never going to get out of here. And you'll be wearing female undergarments for the rest of your life. Um, you know, the, you know, now, of course, we, we, we have a board of review uh, in which, in, uh, uh, which tries to mine out uh, individuals who are trying to, to uh, uh, BS us into thinking they really changed, and, um, and um, those who uh, have not changed. Um, but there is the essential idea, the essential execution, and I will circle back to this particular example. My last example or narrative comes closer to home and closer to students of Islamic law. I um, have a... Um, I have this, this, this lazy habit of requiring my graduate students to meet, um, meet with me at my home um, for selfish reasons, but um, you know you could always justify it as more uh, informal context. Well, 
these graduate students who are all of them specialists in Islamic law, as we met just this past weekend, some of the students after they left, they, they, they turned back quite distressed and said that they noticed as they were leaving the house after engaging in these highly technical, lofty discussions on Islamic law, that they notice as they're leaving the house that there were police cars watching the house and watching them, and some of them were 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 followed um, uh, for a while. Uh, eventually, one of them got a ticket uh, for allegedly stopping, uh, not stopping in a stop sign. Um, um, anyway, uh, now here's the, the, the thing, is that you of course know that what has happened is probably one of the neighbors uh, sees these Middle Eastern looking people, uh, probably in a context of a friendly conversation with uh, one of the people who works uh, at the house, um, knew that we were meeting to talk about Islamic law or Islam, uh, called the police, and the police came to observe the house for a while. Luckily, we know the chief of police in the area, and we had a very constructive, healthy conversation. But as you... As your students tell you about about leaving your house and leaving the context of these highly abstract conversations about Islamic law, and you return to your texts and your studies, and you think about being observed by the police as you are the house being staked out and some of your students followed, it has a remarkably, um, shall I call it, non-scholastic effect upon you. Um, I didn't feel like reading Islamic law books for, for, the, for the rest of the evening. I, I felt like watching trashy movies. And that's exactly what I did. Um, uh, well, of course, specialists in Islamic law watching trashy movies is not very kosher as well, but God is all-forgiving and all-merciful. But in, in a, these narratives, I think, sum up the connection between Islamophobia, at least the way, as I see it, and Islamic law. Islam, why Islamic law? If we mean by Islamic law a code of law as um, conceived and understood by any specific group of Muslims, and a group of rules that are followed 
or not followed, it hardly seems worth the effort. But if we talk about Islamic law as a a, a tradition of an investigation, a tradition of an ongoing investigation that has lasted for centuries, which seeks the divine with a fundamental assumption that it will never realize the divine, the divine. it attempts to research the various implications and manifestations of divinity, but fundamentally for a jurist is the assumption that that divinity is never realized, is never achievable on this earth. And that is why it is a tradition of disputations and a tradition that has been remarkably sophisticated and nuanced, nuanced enough to accommodate the most puritanical and petty-minded intellects as well as the most philosophical and artistic and creative of intellects. It is a tradition that has, is at once represented by individuals who can see nothing but literalism in the text and who believe in the fundamentally circular logic that the good is defined by the text. Because if the good is defined by the text, then why is it good? It's because the text says so. It's circular. As well as more sublime and subtle intellects that would see the good as as vast as God, God's self, and the text as limitless as the as the divine itself, that tradition is the tradition that shared with Thomas Aquinas the very first principle of natural law. In fact, inspired Thomas Aquinas to be more accurate. The very first principle of natural law to do the good and avoid what is not good. And then the search for the good goes on from there. A tradition that the, the, the first inquiry among the more nuanced and subtle minds is the nature of the beautiful and the opposite of beauty, what we call it husn and al It is a tradition that is represented by literally hundreds and thousands and indeed millions of texts, intellectual explorations, 
without any one text ever reaching a point where the author of the text is able, able to say, aha, I found it, I know the answer. If an author of a text would say so, it would make all other jurists from there on irrelevant and all other theologians from there on irrelevant and theologians and jurists don't like to be irrelevant so the search can never stop. But also more seriously because the divine can never stop. But how about Why can't we say, well, this is all fine and great. This sounds good, but we look at Saudi Arabia, we look at many Muslim countries, we don't see this search for the good and the beautiful. We see autocracy, we see dictatorship, we see... Um, persecution of women, um, we see cruelty, we see uh, barbaric activities, and do you really blame us for taking our cue from you in learning that or in assuming that, well, if things are so cruel, amongst you, then so be it. We just implement the laws that you yourselves teach us about you. If my goal is to blame or not to blame, um, this would be a non-starter. Because the truth is always far more complex than that. So for instance, if you agree with me that at the same time that we make assumptions about the, the the male figure, um, the male category, and jihad, or make assumptions about age of majority, and when is a person a child or a man. And we keep in mind that indeed, what has defined adulthood from the opposite of adulthood in Iraq has not been Islamic law for a very long time. It's been French law. When we keep in mind that in the vast majority of Muslim countries, it's not Islamic law that is in force, but various forms of the civil law system, when we keep in mind that authoritarianism and dictatorship has, and indeed secularism itself in Muslim countries, has had a rather uh, brutal history of being perpetuated 
by a, a, a particular class, and that is a class of standing military armies or standing armies, standing military forces that have received their training not from within an Islamic ideological paradigm, but actually within a paradigm that is decisively anti-Islamic, that their number one category of victims uh, are quite often Islamists. When we keep in mind that Muslims themselves whether through uh, the impact of colonialism, which methodically uh, dismantled the institutions that uh, uh, um, funded, supported the infrastructure, that upheld the tradition of disputations and counter-disputations uh, in Islamic law, for a very pragmatic reason, at least that's according to colonial uh, sources, is that they found Islamic law too undeterministic, non-deterministic, to be uh, um, uh, efficient for their commercial purposes. In one of the rather famous stories, um, the uh, British... Um, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, no, this, uh, it was the British forces, uh, that gave an ultimatum to uh, the Khadawi of Ismail to um, uh, either make Islamic law more deterministic or adopt a, a, a Western legal system. Uh, because uh, they, they, they thought Islamic law is just... Um, um, Every time they spoke to an Islamic jurist, they sounded, they felt like they were talking to a rabbi who's saying on the one hand, on the other hand, but, well, but to keep in mind, but of course you have to put this in mind and so on. And they said, you know, this is not good for business. The Puritans themselves, which were aided, the particularly of the Wahhabi ilk, uh, were very useful because they were decisive enough to consider the Ottomans heretics and apostates. No ifs, ands, or buts. And the British secret intelligence couldn't get Muslims to stand up against the Ottomans because of their, uh, they, 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 they had actually tried to get Mufti in Egypt, several Muftis in Egypt, to, to, to declare the Ottomans uh, to even have committed the major sin, and they would hit roadblock after roadblock. The French tried with Khairuddin al Tunisi, who turned out to be, to their great horror, Khairuddin al Tunisi was a, a very well known Muslim reformer, uh, uh, to be more democratic than, than, than uh, the Democrats. And uh, they found in the Wahhabis wonderfully Puritanian, Puritan, Puritan and deterministic folks who were saying, oh yes, the Ottomans, we are willing to testify by God that they're heretics and apostates and everything filthy in the world. And, 
And it happened to be that at the time, the Ottomans were our staunch enemies, or the British staunch enemies, I shouldn't say our, uh, since we shouldn't like the British and um, we should have never forgiven them for denying our, us our independence. Um, but moreover, that Puritanism itself, one of the main reasons that it survived in Saudi Arabia and thrived in, in much of the Gulf is that its profoundly deterministic nature is also remarkably helpful for their capitalist-based economies. Um, they, they're staunchly pro-private property, staunchly in favor of free market and, and, and open markets, um, very hostile to communism, and we, we remember the, uh, um, the Mujahideen and this whole uh, so on. Um, and also wonderfully pedantic in ritualism. So we're um, making sure, for instance, that women do not raise their hands in, in a lecture is far more significant within a puritanical paradigm or the Wahhabi paradigm than whether um, the government is ruled by a, a house of representatives or not. The world can, can make sense as long as women don't raise their hands in lectures or sit behind the curtain. But as to whether people are represented, represented in a democracy, not in Wahhabi thought. Um, that, that doesn't matter uh, to them as much. Then you see where the, the, the very notion of where the Islamic is and the very notion of Islamic jurisprudence in the way we rather obliviously when it is convenient to understand it one way, then the assumptions seem to in be interpreted in the light least favorable to Muslims, as when we, for instance, say, um, well, they're used to corporal punishment and don't have the same human rights standards. But in a different context, so that when um, it, it serves our interest to be able to say, Islamic law, there's nothing to it. We can read the Quran. We can read the traditions of the Prophet. We don't even need a Muslim to do it. We don't need a Jerusalem. We can read it and figure out verses that sound good to us, and that's what we're going to teach. And um, without worrying about the inherent historical contradictions that have doomed our very dynamic with Muslims from the inception of the repeated crusades to the age of colonialism, to the age of post-colonialism, to the age of imperialism, to the age of post-imperialism, and now apparently to the age of colonialism. 
In this, Islam remains dealt with at the level of the emotive. It never really passes from the realm of a psychologically, something that induces a psychological reaction rather than a systematic, coherent systems of thought or attempting to understand systems of thought. I'll give you one more example before I quit. If you notice then, one of the one of the greatest things I, one of the greatest difficulties I encounter as a teacher of Islamic law is to get law students, since I teach in a law school, to apply just normal legal critical reasoning to the doctrines of Islamic law that they're learning. What I mean by that is that whenever Islam is invoked, it is as if you find students immediately, instantaneously, lose about 20, 30 IQs, (laughs) where it is not just that they only understand what is dumbed down, but they they, they seek what is dumbed down. They actively create what is dumbed down. And at even a larger, larger scale, at a social scale, we embrace what is dumbed down and reject what is layered and sophisticated. Look at our bestsellers. Our ingenuity with Islam and Islamic law has put us in the remarkably embarrassing position of considering those to be the true Islamic reformers of the age to be those who don't believe in Islam at all. For instance, Hershey Ali. People who swear by the grave of their mothers that they're atheists. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in Islam, they don't believe in Islamic law, and yet we insist on labeling them as the true reformers of the age. Um, The the Times Magazine last year declared uh, a Muslim atheist as the greatest reformer uh, of Islam. Another top 100 uh, list now, this time, produced Hershey Ali. Every year we have our own favorite. uh, When websites celebrate those who, very condescendingly, we're able to say, because Muslims need to learn to think critically and they they need to learn the arts of freedom of speech, we are going to celebrate a conference on Muslim heretics. Fine, Uh, but if we are, if the purpose of the conference to celebrate our ability to be free thinkers about the tradition that doesn't belong to us, maybe we've achieved our goals. But 
if the purpose of the conference is to encourage free thinking by people that actually belong to the tradition by telling them that we are celebrating your heretics, I don't think we've achieved very much. But even more, instead of worrying about the critical abilities of Muslims, where is our own critical abilities to think about more than a million individuals killed in Iraq, or our own critical abilities to think about over a million Palestinians held in a huge ghetto, uh, um, surrounded by military occupation. Where is that profound moral sense when it comes to silencing as in the case of the Al-Hajj case in, in Colombia, um, silencing a, a, someone who gives us a narrative of history that we do not like. Uh, why is it that the, 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 it is these paradoxes that should capture our attention the most and that should invite us to... Remember some very basic wisdom, I think, taught by all religions. You want to see good in others. Start with yourself. And that's exactly what we should do. Start with ourselves. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.